Hello, and welcome to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise, and I'm here with my co-host and partner in crime, very much pun intended, Annie. <laughs> this is our first episode of our new podcast, and I'm so excited to share this dream of ours with all of you. I want to thank my co-host, Annie, for agreeing to be the host of this podcast with me. We had a very serendipitous meeting when I moved to Denver through our mutual friend, Christine. Shout out to Christine. Yes. And quickly bonded over our shared interests and overly opinionated takes on the murder documentaries and recent true crime news stories. You truly took a huge leap of faith by accepting to do this with me and to take time away from your hubby and pups to research these episodes. And I am really grateful to you. I feel like I can say that right back at you. My husband and dogs are very appreciative because I finally have someone who's obsessed with true crime like I am. So I can stop talking their ears off and I'll just start talking your ears off and our listeners. I'm hoping that your husband doesn't think that you're plotting his murder because <laughs> my roommate Blake is getting a little suspicious. A little concerned. <laughs> What's exciting is every Sunday we'll be giving you a new podcast episode covering everything from true crime cases, recent headlines, paranormal conspiracies, and at least I think at one point you'd mentioned crows. We'll get there. <laughs> Some of you may know me from my short time on the Bachelor franchise, but I guess despite what my newly downloaded Hinge profile says, I am taking a break from pursuing love to share with you my passion for all things true crime and the macabre. That's quite a switch, but one that I'm here for. <laughs> However, I think after you hear today's case and interview, you will understand what really started my curiosity about true crime. As this is the first time a case really wasn't just a thing that I watched play out in the media, but truly hit close to home for me personally. By the way, how the heck did you get interested in true crime? So I kind of had a similar situation like you did where there was a case close to my hometown. Um, I was in fifth grade and I had my handy dandy yellow detective folder <laughs> and this girl in a, home, in a town next to mine went missing. And so that kind of triggered my love for it. I was obsessed with it probably will definitely leave my parents' dismay, but um, I'll get into that in a later case. Well, if you want to celebrate the launch of Case of Sunday Scaries, we'd be so incredibly grateful if you would subscribe, like, review, do all the things. It makes such a difference to help grow our audience. Today, I'm going to be talking about the horrific death of Tanner Pell and Sarah Clark. To research this case, I relied heavily on court documents and news reports from that time. As always, you can find a list of references for each of the cases we cover on our blog page. I do want to give a special shout out to the book, The Plant and the Hippo by Tanner's mother, Lori Pell. It's, oh, you didn't get a chance to read it because I wanted Annie to be a little surprised along with you guys about this case, but it's such a beautifully written book. It's a really honest take on Lori's experience as a mother raising Tanner and his subsequent murder, but also just a tale of a mother's grief. She tells it from the perspective of a little hippo figurine and a houseplant that Tanner gave to her as if they were narrating the story. This case did not get a lot of media coverage outside of Spokane, Washington. So I really felt this book was an insight into Tanner's life and made him a little bit more human beyond just the horrific headlines and what happens later. So if you could support her all by reading The Plant and the Hippo, I would really appreciate it. Of course, we'll put a link in the show notes and I'll just warn you, get your tissues ready. Justin Crenshaw was born in 1990. Due to the lack of coverage of this case, I wasn't able to do a deep backstory to his upbringing, which as Annie knows is kind of my obsession with true crime. I want to know the why behind the things that we can't actually explain, but so often things that happened in their childhood shows us the monster they would later become. Some big red flags. Right. So we don't know a whole lot about his background, but we do know that he was born with a biological sister named Vicky, but at a very young age, his sister went to live with her aunt in Spokane. Justin remained with his mother in Las Vegas, Nevada. A KXLY4 news report disclosed that Justin's young life was incredibly troubled. He was even sentenced to 18 months in juvenile detention for stabbing someone in the back. It's terrifying. I mean, if that's not a precursor to what happens later, I don't know what is. His former friends made statements to the media and police, and they described Justin as a troubled man, egotistical, deceitful, and often violent, especially when he was drinking or using drugs. He got into drug use at a pretty early age, and it escalated until he was using heroin almost every day. At this point in time, he's about 20 years old and expressed a desire to get sober and have a fresh start which led him, of all places, to mice. Oh, what a throwback. 
I genuinely thought I was like on the verge of CIA level coding, trying to learn <laughs> HTML code so I could have a cool playlist and background. The one thing that I think about, because I did have to research if MySpace was still a thing, it kind of is, it kind of isn't. It's not what we knew it as. But could you imagine if on Instagram or Facebook we had a top eight friends now? Oh, I have a story about top eight. Oh, no. Whenever I would notice my friends were online changing their top eight, I would call their landline to kick them off the internet and do it over and over and over. So they could not take me from like the top to, you know, off their top eight. So my friends are listening. Yeah, that was me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. I mean, but if we had it now, could you imagine like news sources citing Kim Kardashian took Kanye West off her top eight? There's trouble in paradise. Like it would just be this clickbait thing. So thank God we don't have that now. Yeah, but that's that's (laughs) enough about MySpace. Anyways, Justin found his biological sister on MySpace, who in 2008 was living in Spokane, Washington. After communicating back and forth, they agreed that Justin should come up for a visit just for a week in an effort for them to reconnect. He arrived February 11th and soon acquired a job at Brooklyn Wildfire Grill, where he met Tanner Pell, who also worked there in the kitchen. He also, through his sister, met her best friend, Sarah Clark, who is at the time an 18-year-old Mead High School senior. Just breaks my heart. Yes. Sarah Clark was born December 29, 1989, and was one of six children to the Clark family. She was by all accounts a lovely girl who ran track and cross-country, she worked at Albertson's Grocery Store, which I didn't know what that was till I moved to Arizona. For those of you that don't live on the West Coast, it's like a safe way. And was on her yearbook committee of her high school. Through Justin's sister, she was introduced to Justin, and they quickly became a romantic item. Tanner was born January 19, 1988. He was the youngest of his three siblings. Tanner loved to sing and play the guitar and was known to give impromptu home concerts for all of his friends and family. As many teenagers do, Tanner had gone through some difficult times, but had recently moved back to Spokane to live with his mother and pursue his passion for music and cooking. He got a job working as a cook at Brooklyn Woodfire Grill. He was a loving man who led with kindness, which is why when Justin Crenshaw began working there, he invited him to hang out with him and his friends, always making sure that people felt included. Ugh, I feel like I already love these people, and they're such bright lights, and I just feel like I'm not going to like this story. You won't. This does not have a happy ending, unfortunately. Tanner, his brother Matt, and his mom Lori welcomed a new member to the household shortly after Tanner moved back, a roommate they found through Craigslist, which, just a warning, maybe not the best way to find a roommate, (laughs) but in this situation, it worked out for them. Her name was Mandy, and while her and Tanner were separated by quite a few years, Tanner easily welcomed her, and they became quite friendly. Tanner invited Justin and some friends over one night, and Justin showed up, accompanied by Sarah. Throughout the evening, the roommate Mandy noted that he had said some odd things. You know those guys that walk in and they're uncomfortable and overcompensate? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's what Justin was doing that night, and they showboat in all the wrong ways. Yes. I've dated a few of them. He was just making sort of off-the-wall comments, and one thing that really stuck in Mandy's mind was the recollection of him asking if they were organ donors. Who asked that? That is so odd. I would be like, are you taking my organs? That's my first thought. It's weird. I'm trying to think of a situation where that comment wouldn't seem off the wall. And the only, the only thing I could think of is if you were like a mortuary student or a medical doctor. Or if you're getting your license and they're like, are you an organ donor? Maybe at the DMV, the only way it's allowed to (laughs) ask you that. But he responded in kind of a weird way when they said that they were. He said, not me. When I go, I'm taking everything with me. Goosebumps. On February 27th, just the next day, Sarah got into an argument with her parents and decided to let things simmer down by staying with her coworker, Gabe. Now, let's all remember, she was 18 years old and a senior in high school. We all got in fights with our parents at that age. She picked Justin up and headed to her coworker's home where they hung out with him and his girlfriend. Gabe and his girlfriend offered for them to stay the night as they were going out for the evening. But... Tanner called and invited Justin over to hang out as he had the house to himself as his mom, Mandy, and brother Matt were all out of the house for the evening. Later that night, a hostess at the restaurant where Tanner and Justin worked received a call around 12.14 a.m. It was from Justin and a girl that she didn't recognize, but we can assume now that it was Sarah. They were trying to convince her to come to the party with them at Tanner's house. She decided, thankfully, not to go, but told the police later that it sounded like Justin was fine. He had been drinking a little, but nothing seemed wrong, and he didn't seem upset at all. 
We may never know what exactly happened in the house when that phone call ended, but at 4.30 a.m., a motorist called 911 to report a home fire at 5112 Elm Street. Police responded in a matter of minutes, but after kicking the door in, were met with such heavy smoke they weren't able to enter the home. At 4.37, which is wildly quick response times, the Spokane Fire Department arrived. The fire was mostly centered in the kitchen, but as they worked to put out that fire, one of the firemen noticed something draped in a sheet on the floor in the hallway from the kitchen leading to the bedrooms. I can't get over this happened on Elm Street. I have goosebumps. Quickly, I want to give a trigger warning. I am going to be talking about the brutality of these murders because I think it's so important to comprehend how awful this scene truly was and how brutal Justin was to these innocent people. So if you're not in a place where you want to hear about this, feel free to skip a minute ahead. We will put a little note in the show notes to where you can skip to if you're just not in a position to hear this. When the firemen removed the sheet, they found Tanner in a pool of blood with a large broadsword sticking out of his chest. And when I say the word broadsword, it is exactly what you imagine. Like knights in shining armor. How did he find a broadsword? We'll get there. Okay. As they explored the remaining rooms, they found the deceased body of Sarah Clark with a samurai sword next to her. The scene was so horrific that a few members of the fire department had to leave the house and got physically sick just from the sight of it. And you know what these people see on a daily basis. Oops. I can't imagine having to do this and then go home to your family. Right. Ugh. Tanner was found next to his guitar in the hallway covered in a sheet. Tanner had multiple defensive wounds on his arms and hands as he had attempted to defend himself against Justin's rage. He had over a dozen knife wounds on his head and neck. Imprints of finger marks were found around his neck. The broadsword had been plunged through the blanket into his torso at least four times before essentially pinning him to the floor beneath him. Sarah Clark was found in Tanner's bedroom, leaned up against the bed and nightstand with her legs on the floor. She had over 26 knife wounds to her head, neck, and upper torso. Justin had cut her neck over six separate times. And this is just my speculation, but when I was reading the case notes, it didn't sound like the samurai sword was used against Sarah at all. But that, because of the severity of her neck wounds, in an odd decision, it was used to kind of prop her head up. All of that was done post-mortem. Something that is so odd to me about this scene is what Justin did after Sarah and Tanner were deceased. Justin covered Tanner's body with a sheet, which you would maybe assume meant like you didn't want to see what you had just died. You felt guilty. But yet, that is when he brought out the sword and Tanner had already passed and pinned him to the floor with the sword and then did, you know, the position of Sarah... If he had found these swords, why he ransacked the house, which is what they believe, because Tanner's brother actually was the owner of these swords. Maybe he did this to, like, give the impression of a robbery, but then to return to their bodies and do this after they had already passed, it just seems like overkill. 100%. This guy's a true psycho. I mean, I'm sitting here speechless, which doesn't really happen with a lot of cases. And I'm just, oh my gosh, this picture I'm getting in my head is just horrific. It's awful. And what is the purpose? Right. The people that you have wanted to do this to are gone. Why do we need to continue on? It's just awful. Justin then tried to cover his crime by starting a fire in the kitchen. The fire department believed he put pizza boxes on the stove to ignite the fire. Okay, so let's talk about the timeline of this asshole. He comes to Spokane for a fresh start. He wants to get sober, reunite with his long-lost sister, gets a job and a girlfriend in two weeks. Now, to me, you're thriving. Right. You have that fresh start that he so badly wanted. And yet, two weeks after arriving in Spokane, he brutally murders them. It makes no No, sense. It doesn't. And I think that's what bothers me about this case is that there's no motive. There's no understanding of what actually happened after that phone call where he was inviting that girl over. What could have happened in that three hours that would change all of these people's lives forever? Well, and it's so sad because Tanner and Sarah welcomed him with open arms. If, you know, they were like, hi, you're new here. You need some friends. We'll be, that, we'll be those friends for you. And then have this happen. Like, it's so unexpected. Unexpected and wildly unfair. Mm-hmm. So he thought he was really quite clever lighting the house on fire. But like the true idiot he is, and yes, I can call him that because he's a horrible human. 
This man left a trail of evidence. When the investigation began, Justin's aunt told police that she believed that he might have been over at that house. Again, Justin was staying with his aunt's sister at the time, but she couldn't be quite sure. So what does Justin do after this conversation between police and his aunt? He calls them. Oh my gosh. Ring a ding ding. I'm just going to tell on myself, I was the last person to see them alive. I can't. Not that I'm trying to tell you how to get away with murder, but I don't think this is step number one. So he makes their job a lot easier, calls them up, calls the sheriff's office, lets them know he had been at Tanner's house the night before, but was gone long before the fire was reported. But wait for it. As officers are driving over, obviously they need to talk to him. He, at this point, seems like he was the last person who sees Sarah and Tanner alive. He tells his aunt, the police are going to want to collect my clothes. I'm like thinking, what was the aunt? What was going through her head? Can't even imagine. But Justin, if you were an innocent man, why would you be concerned about the police wanting the clothes you had on the night before? Let's also remember he did stab someone before this as a juvenile. So maybe they processed his clothing at that time as well. Okay. So he literally knew what to prepare for. Keep that in mind, though, that statement, because it will come back around. Justin was interviewed at his aunt's home and told police that he had been to Tanner's that night. They had all been drinking. He got excessively drunk and asked to go back to Gabe's apartment, where him and Sarah were meant to be staying that evening. He said Sarah and Tanner drove him there, dropped him off, and returned together to Tanner's place. Which already is, I feel a little fishy. Yes. Why wouldn't you stay with your boyfriend? Right. Now, what did Justin say he did the rest of the evening? Oh, nothing. He just went to sleep, woke up, and Sarah wasn't there, so he decided to walk back to his aunt's house. I don't know if you know this, but police are allowed to stretch the truth a bit when they're doing interviews. So they can say, and it depends on the state, mm -hmm. they can say they have certain evidence that they don't to kind of get you to the point of a confession to a certain degree. And actually, that'd be an interesting episode to cover yeah. later. Like, what can and cannot they say? There had been a bloody fingerprint that had been found on the back door, but this had not been processed yet, as it had only been less than 24 hours since this was even discovered. However, the police officer interviewing Justin asked him to explain, hey, but... Why is your fingerprint found in blood at the murder scene? Justin said it couldn't be his, but quickly refused to provide a fingerprint sample. Red flag number 500. This guy has a bouquet of red flags. Yeah. Like, which one do you want right now? Because I have a bunch of them. It makes absolutely no sense. I would assume that most people who aren't brutal, horrible murderers, when they find out their girlfriend and buddy were murdered, soon after they left a supposed house party, would provide as much evidence as possible to rule themselves out so that the police could go find who actually did that. I could, yes. I could have said that better. I have my thoughts on lie detector tests, but as far as DNA, fingerprints, I mean, take my clothes, take my mm -hmm. dog if you need them for the day. I don't care. Right, right. If I didn't do this, I'm going to prove that I didn't do this. So the police were clearly on the same page as us because they weren't buying his shit either. So they got a warrant right then to obtain his fingerprints and took him down to the station. As they were fingerprinting him, an officer noticed a cut on his hand. They asked how he received it, and he tells them that he cut it on a handicap sign at Gabe's apartment. What a weird choice. Yes. I was cutting limes for the tequila we were drinking the other night at the house party I said I was at. Maybe that <laughs> makes slightly more sense. But come to find out, at this apartment, there was no such handicap sign. To no one's surprise, the bloody fingerprint was later found to be a match to Justin Crenshaw. That wasn't the only evidence they found. Are you ready for this list? I don't know. Sarah's car, because remember, he said that Sarah brought him back to Gabe's apartment and then went back for a couple more drinks with Tanner. Well, Sarah's car was found abandoned at a park not far from where Justin was staying with his aunt. His prints were found on the exterior driver's side door. Blood found in the car only matched Justin's DNA, meaning his story of Sarah and Tanner bringing him home was clearly untrue. He was the only person who left the scene in Sarah's car. The next piece of evidence was discovered the next day by an employee at, I believe it's called Roundy's Kawasaki? Kawasaki? I like it. I think that that's like motor, something to do with either jet skis or snowmobile. Or like a motorcycle. That, that too, probably. <laughs> if it has an engine, well, I don't know how to make it go. So, excuse me. Anyway, one of the employees had found a knife in the median of the road with blood on the blade. 
course they called the police because at this point people knew what was going on and that there's an investigation. The knife was a tools of the trade knife, which is the brand. And that was the same brand the Pales had in their kitchen. DNA testing was ran and the blood on the blade was a mixture of Justin and Sarah's. That's not all. I feel like I'm just going to keep saying, oh, but wait. Yeah. They then searched Gabe's apartment, where they believe Justin went after the murder to clean himself up before returning home. They found a pair of men's underwear with blood on the waistband. The blood on the underwear was a mixture of Sarah and Tanner. Another knife found at the scene on the top of the fridge had a mixture of all three of their blood. Because again, fridge was in the kitchen. That's where he started the fire to try to, you know, get rid of evidence of all of this. But he left the weapon there. So that's, again, a choice. Great. They then found further bloody fingerprints matching Justin's and Tanner's room. Tanner's wallet, which had been on his bed and was covered in blood. Well, can we guess who that blood belonged to? Justin. Because let's remember that both of them fought really hard Mm -hmm. against their attacker. So a lot of Justin's blood was at the scene because they, they fought for their lives. And you know what? Good for them. Yeah. On April 2nd, Justin was officially arrested and charged with two counts of premeditated murder in the first degree with aggravating circumstances. Then, get this. Remember that comment that Justin made to his aunt about the police wanting to collect his clothing? Yeah. Well, April 28th, his aunt was cleaning out the garage, preparing for a garage sale. So at this point, it had been about two months after the murder. Justin is already arrested and being held, and she's just preparing for a little spring cleaning. Inside the garage, she found a green storage bin, and inside of that were bags of bloody soaked jeans, a pair of Nike shoes, and a belt that she knew belonged to Justin. The pants had blood from both victims, and the shoes had Tanner's blood on them. Now here is something that really stuck with me. The belt he was wearing the night of the murder had the phrase, trust no one. I don't know if it was stitched into it, written on it, or engraved, but it also had the symbols of broken hearts and knives, which is just incredibly haunting to think about Yes, because people don't normally wear warning signs on them, but he sure did because Tanner and Sarah befriended this new guy in town, a man they wouldn't know not to trust, and within a few days, the man that was wearing a trust-no-one belt would be the one to end their lives. So with all this evidence, you would think this would be an open-and-shut case, lock him up, throw away the key, right? Yeah. No. Justin, Mr. Egomaniac, and his defense team couldn't allow for that. First, Justin argued that his lawyer, who was running for election as a county prosecutor, well, that seemed to be a conflict of interest as he wouldn't be able to really focus on the case. And maybe I could make a case for that, but for Justin, I wouldn't. And neither did the court because they dismissed it and did not take any action to replace his lawyer. Then his team argued something I have never heard before. Now, you've heard of diminished capacity, right? So his team argued that Justin had diminished capacity at the time of the murder. He claimed that he had a rare alcohol disorder called pathological intoxication. No, he has psychological issues. That is what he has. To push the blame onto alcohol is such a weak, pathetic move. Well, here's why they wanted to do it. In the state of Washington, if you are convicted of a crime but can prove that you have diminished capacity, you will be convicted of a lesser sentence, be acquitted altogether, or committed to a mentally ill treatment facility instead of jail. So that was his defense team just doing their job. Doing as hard as it probably was for them. Yeah. Back to this whole pathological intoxication. We've had a few cocktails in our day, wouldn't you say? (laughs) uh, I've sometimes had a few too many. And I've sent a drunk text to an ex that I deeply regretted. I've gotten like Taco Bell and passed out in my bed watching Real Housewives. Like halfway through like a Crunchwrap Supreme. (laughs) For sure. I just had to do some research because how can being drunk cause someone to be horribly violent, seemingly against their will or against what they normally, how they would normally act? I looked it up. And psychologydictionary.org defines pathological intoxication as an acute psychotic episode occurring in either an individual whose tolerance for alcohol is low due to an unstable personality or epileptic tendencies, or a relatively normal individual who drinks after being subjected to prolonged stress, debilitating illness, or an exhausting experience. The onset of this disturbance is sudden and may even follow just moderate drinking. 
The patient becomes confused, disoriented, and will experience hallucinations, which will lead to impulsive acts or outright violence. In a 1935 study, 26 out of the 174 patients diagnosed with this had been charged with such crimes as manslaughter, arson, and sexual assault. These disturbances reportedly last for a few minutes to a day or more, and then are followed by prolonged sleep. Keep that sleep part in mind. Then they suffer complete amnesia of the episode. That is terrifying. So I'm thinking in my life, I definitely drank around, I mean, in college, high school, sorry, mom, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of people. So to think this is actually a thing, it kind of makes you want to just reevaluate everyone. I hear you. I did not know that this even existed, so I'm glad to have educated myself on this. However, remember that prolonged sleep thing? For this to have happened, there was no prolonged sleep. He had to clean up. That's right. He had to go back to Gabe's house, clean mm -hmm. himself off, move Sarah's car, and then go back to his aunt's house pretending nothing happened. So, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know if you have to have one or all of these symptoms. But I don't think that um, he had a whole lot of time to sleep that evening. So basically leading up to this trial, Justin exhausted every avenue possible to delay the inevitable. But there was no reasonable way they could find to conduct a test to prove he had this disorder. So when I went through the case notes, they were trying to explain. And once you got past like the legal mumble jumble, mm -hmm. the best way I could contextualize it is they had to, to see if he had this. Have a doctor bring him to a controlled environment like a hospital. Okay. Get him intoxicated under supervision and then present him with a similar set of circumstances or provoke him. Ooh. Which does not sound fun for that poor doctor. But also, how do you present him with reasonable, similar circumstances when these people did nothing? So true. Let's just say the testing never occurred. They could not figure out how to do that. No hospital really wanted that done and to be a part of this. So prosecutors presented a possible motive that Sarah Clark wouldn't engage with sex with Justin. And again, this is just the prosecuting team trying to come up with any motive. They hypothesized that maybe she wouldn't engage with sex with him that evening. He became enraged and attacked her. And that's when Tanner came to the room to investigate her screams as she was being overpowered by Justin. And then he overpowered Tanner. I get why they came up with this idea for a motive. But it also means that Tanner was such a sweet boy that when a girl got a little intoxicated, he was respectful. He put her, put her in his room and didn't bother her. And Justin apparently was the exact opposite. Justin's lawyer stuck to his diminished capacity defense and tried to prove that the lack of a proven motive meant that he did, in fact, not have one. The jury rejected his claim of diminished capacity, and after four hours of deliberation, a two-week trial, and nearly two and a half years after the murder on July 27, 2010, Justin Crenshaw was convicted of the murders of Tanner and Sarah. In Washington at this time, the only possible sentences for aggravated first degree is life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. Wow. Now, we have to keep in mind that the time of the murder, Justin was 20 years old. So I can see why they would maybe struggle to get a jury to put the death penalty on a 20-year-old. Yeah. And in a case like this, you just want to see conviction go to a guilty person. So Justin was sentenced to two life sentences. And on all days, he was sentenced on my birthday, August 5th, with no possibility of parole. We'd think the story would end there, right? Right. That would be lovely for the parents, for the family, for the victims. But no, Justin continues to be a total ass clown. Since his conviction, Justin has gotten in trouble numerous times in jail, even attacking another inmate with a sharpened tool. Clearly, this man is exactly where he should be, rotting away in jail for the rest of his miserable life. While I was doing research, Annie wanted to see a picture of him just to get an idea of what he would look like. Do you want to share what your Google results came up with? This guy has a date my inmate account. So basically, he has this long description of like how great he is and how much of a goofball he is and how you can write him letters. And I was like, Elise, look at this. And we both were just, I think, so mad. It's like, you don't get any happiness for what you did to people. And even the picture he had was like a selfie with him and some other inmates and bragging about his mustache. And it was disturbing. And I hope that he never sees happiness. And he certainly doesn't deserve to have a pen pal. A pen pal. 
don't understand programs like that. I understand I'm all for reformation, but this man has now proven three times mm-hmm. to have a pattern of well, yeah. absolute violence. And on his profile, it said, like, it's going to take a while to get back because he's in solitary confinement. Oh, that's right. For doing something. I don't know. I didn't really go into detail, but it was basically like, pull right back when you can. But all in such a jovial way. Like, yes. he's taking a break. It's yes. like an influencer saying, I'm taking a break from social media. Right. When they were describing the fact that he had gotten in trouble for stabbing an inmate and was going to be in solitary confinement for a while. It makes no sense to me. But back to the people that actually matter in this story. Just take a moment and acknowledge that Tanner and Sarah's lives were cut horrifically short for absolutely no reason. Their kindness was answered with brutality and hate that cannot be rationalized. I was able to watch a video of Tanner that you can find on YouTube playing his guitar and singing. And without even knowing him, it's so clear to see why people were so drawn to him. He has a pretty infectious personality and smile. I know a little less about Sarah. Maybe her family chose to be a little bit more private. But from people's accounts from her school, her church and friends, she was incredibly beloved. And her school, in fact, memorialized her with a zebra bench that reflected how they remembered her as the girl that always wore a zebra coat. Oh, my heart. Incredibly tragic that a senior in high school's life was taken because she hung out with the wrong guy for a week and a half. To bring this full circle, when we first started this episode, I mentioned that this is the case that began my fascination with true crime, of trying to give a why to the unexplainable. We're at the end of this, and it still may be unclear to you why this case impacted me so much, especially as its media coverage was mainly at the local and state level, and thus wouldn't have reached me in the bitter cold of North Dakota, where I was living at the time. Remember the roommate Mandy who moved into the Pale Home? That is my sister Mandy. We hear about crimes on TV every day. Sometimes as a nation, we're captivated as we watch the investigation play out in the media. But until you're touched so closely by a crime such as this, where one decision that night for her not to return from her boyfriend's house and stay over meant that I too would be grieving the loss of a family member. It just seems surreal to comprehend the impact that these crimes not only have on the victims and their families, but has a ripple effect throughout the community, throughout the nation, and lasting consequences. With that said, I would like to invite my sister Mandy to now join us to share for the first time her experience and shed some light on just how far-reaching and long-lasting the repercussions of a crime like this can be. I'd like to now introduce you to the other roommate, the roommate that happened to not be home that night, or most assuredly would have been yet another victim of a senseless crime. My sister, Mandy. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. This was an interesting case for me to cover because this is why I got kind of obsessed with true crime. I felt like we lived in this uh, bubble in Alaska, and this certainly broke my idea of A sense of safety, even though I wasn't involved in it necessarily, but having such a close connection. And it is definitely why I became invested in true crime and trying to figure out a why behind the unwiable. Is that a good way to put it? I, again, appreciate you talking about this. I know it's not an easy conversation to have, but I think it's important to highlight that not only do the victims and their families get impacted when these crimes happen, but the community as a whole and those in the six degrees of separation. This case, as tragic as it was, was not heavily covered in the media. And the one thing that I felt was missing besides reading Tanner's mom's book was kind of a personal understanding of who Tanner and Sarah were. And since you lived with him, I thought maybe you could give us a highlight of what you remember about him. So Tanner was one of those guys where he wanted everyone in his life whether he knew them for five years or five minutes to feel welcomed and included. I mean, he would be one of those guys outside trying to hug everybody. He loved music. He loved people. He loved his family. He was so kind. And even though we didn't really know each other very well initially, he welcomed me right away. I mean, I did not know this family. found them on Craigslist. He would give me compliments about my, you know, if my eyebrows looked great, if my outfit <laughs> like kind was of nice. Noticing eyebrows. <laughs> you know, he was just really, really kind and really sweet and pretty, I don't even know if, if naive is the word, but just didn't really think about any sort of consequences to befriending everyone and didn't really give a lot of thought into 
motives or intentions or anything. It was just like, here's somebody that I could be friends with and I can impact their life. And that's just kind of how he was. When I was reading his mom's book, there was one thing that stuck out to me about your guys' relationship. And I don't even know if you remember this because obviously it's been a while, but she mentioned playing a song for you on his guitar. Yep. What is it? I'm, they really loved Dr. Hook. And I don't know if this is one of those songs, but it was about like, I'm just a few years older, baby, or gosh, I don't know. But it was something because I was older than he was. And I have the melody in my mind, but I cannot think of the words now. But yes, he used to play his guitar. The whole family was very musically inclined, great voices. They could all play instruments. And so he would play songs for us. He would write songs. They would sing songs together. Music was a massive part of their, their life. This is where we talk about the person that's not so great. You met Justin prior to this happening. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. The night before it happened, actually, he had Justin come over and he was really excited to introduce Justin to his mom and I because Tanner had actually been living in Seattle and had just moved back recently into the house. We lived in Spokane, which is about four hours away. And he got a new job at this restaurant just down the street. And Justin like, had only been in town for a few days. And so Again, it was Tanner's mission to make everyone feel like a part of their community, to feel included. And so he brought him over to the house and I hung out there with him probably till midnight, which was pretty uncharacteristic of me, especially since I had had a full-time job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how long has it been? I was 12 years younger then, so I wasn't quite the old fogey I am now, but I still worked (laughs) full-time. You know, I didn't stay up late on week weekdays typically, but not only did Tanner bring Justin over and introduce us to, to him, but they also brought over Sarah, who was in high school, who Justin had kind of sort of been seeing. So I got to meet both of them that night wow. and I went to bed like I was renting the basement of the house and there was a staircase and then an exit door there was no exit in my area at all and um what's crazy is like justin was in my house and i went to bed downstairs with no door or anything just trusting that i would be completely fine and and i was wow did you have any impression of him i mean he would not be someone i would normally hang out with but A lot of people that I got introduced to, you know, had different lifestyles and alternative and different interests in music. That just wasn't my crowd. But I also didn't really have a crowd. I had just been in Spokane for like six months. So I was just strictly hanging out with my my boyfriend and some of his friends and some of my friends from college every now and then. But I was working. So I wasn't really like making new friends or anything. So no, he and he said some weird things that that were weird, but they weren't red flags. Like I didn't feel like I was in danger or anything. He was just strange. Like he wanted to see my ID and he talked about, gosh, one of the weird things that he said now in hindsight was like, you know, oh, you guys are organ donors, not me. Like I'm taking all my stuff with me when I die. Just, just kind of weird weird things. He was telling us that this one time he got shot. So he was showing us this scar. I think it was in his back or something like that. But again, like I'm like, okay, this dude is not someone I'd be friends with, but I wasn't scared enough to, you know, leave my house and not stay there that night. More off-putting than alarming. Yeah, it was just, okay, just some weird guy. (laughs) Cool story, (laughs) Yeah, like, I didn't know if he was trying to impress me, you know, like being the new kid in town. And I mean, I don't know. Overcompensating for nerves and and being just one of the bunch. Yeah, you know manly and i've survived a bullet you know i I have no idea but i didn't care i'm like okay dude probably never see you again yeah exactly you weren't home that night thank god you were at your boyfriend's yes how did you find out what happened well i had gone out to my boyfriend's the night before to like hang out and i had no intention of staying there so i didn't have like work clothes or anything really with me my boyfriend actually got a fight didn't want to stay, but it it started snowing and I didn't want to get on the freeway and drive home. So I just stayed there and I got a call. Like I got out of the shower the next morning early because I was going to, if I remember correctly, have to run home and get work clothes. Cause again, I hadn't planned on staying. Right. Um, so I think it was five or six in the morning that I got a call 
and I picked it up and it was the Spokane police just first confirming that it was me, that I was alive, and then letting me know that there'd been a house fire, like there was an incident at my house, and I, I have no idea why I asked this, but I asked if someone died, and they said yes, and that, that was all I knew. I handed the phone to my boyfriend and just kind of like slumped against the wall, trying to wrap my brain around the fact that someone died and my house was on fire, and... And I actually thought it was my cat. I thought my cat had knocked over my heat lamp and had started a fire. So I was already spiraling into this. Oh my gosh, I'm I inadvertently killed somebody. Yeah, I'm responsible for this. And what am I going to, I mean, it was just, yeah, that's how I found out. I didn't turn on the news. It was already on the news then. But people weren't really telling me so much what was going on. Like there was a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes, but it wasn't being shared with me. I think just to protect me and to like just provide a buffer for me, really. Mm -hmm. Were you ever questioned by the police? Yes, that's why I had to go to the house so they can, again, see that I, I am indeed alive. Right. And that's when I found out that there were actually two people that were deceased inside. One was a male and one was a female. And that's all we knew. So I didn't know if it was, you know, Tanner and his mother you know, I actually thought it was his mother. You know, I, I didn't know. I had no idea. And the weird thing about a crime scene is information trickles out and some of it's true and some of it's not true, but it's not this like linear whodunit kind of thing. Like it's gunshots and it's this and it's that. And it's all these different hypotheses of what might have happened. And as people are weighing in and p putting the pieces together and just a very confusing time where you literally don't know what's happening. Um, I did get questioned. Really quick, just to clarify, when you're talking about kind of like the trickle down of information, that's not necessarily from the police, but what you're seeing on the news mixed with what the police are telling you and people are telling you. It's what cops are telling various people. There's multiple cops, multiple, like tons of cops on scene and there's firefighters. And so different people have different things that they saw, experienced, that they're thinking happened. There's different family members involved. When I showed up, there was, you know, all kinds of family and friends there already. I mean, this house was right on a major highway. And so a lot of people kind of knew what was going on very quickly. It was quickly dubbed the Nightmare on Elm Street because we lived on Elm Street. Wow, um, I didn't know that. Yes. It was just this big huge thing and and they didn't take bodies out so during this period of waiting everyone's talking sobbing crying going through wide array of emotions and grief and just horror I was interviewed by the police pretty much right away and it was unfathomable to me that I would know of anybody that would murder somebody but Justin was the only like new thing that had entered our life and I was never afraid of him while he was in our house, but he's the only person that made sense. So I gave his name to the police and they were actually already on it. So they already had some sort of forensics or something. Well, I can say for our family too, that was just a very tough day as a whole. Yeah, Elise, I would yeah. love to hear yours night in it. Like, what were you feeling whenever Mandy called you? She didn't. It was my parents. It was the first call. And it, it just seemed like you were watching a news recording, I guess is the best way to put it, like disconnected mm -hmm. because we lived a very privileged childhood in a lot of ways. We were protected from a lot of outside sources because we lived in Alaska <laughs> <laughs> and the news takes, you know, a yeah. year to get to us. But also it just felt so surreal that I wasn't all that emotionally attached to it right away because it just seemed unfathomable that like someone that yeah. close to my sister was murdered. I don't think my brain wanted to allow for where I would tend to go, mm -hmm. which is the anxiety of she could have been there. This could have been her. And it would have taken me into a very dark spot. You were just in shock. A little bit. Yeah. Couldn't like process it. I mean, I hate to admit this now, but it was it was almost just so unbelievable that there was no emotion mm -hmm. attached to it right away. That stuff doesn't happen. Yeah. You, you see it, you read about it, but until someone close to you is affected by this, it's just a news story on TV. Yep. You don't get as emotionally invested. I mean, I obviously felt terrible for her and the cat that did make it out of the fire alive. <laughs> yes, they rescued my cat. That was one of the first questions I asked and I felt very guilty for asking that question, but it was like, that was one of the only things that I had left. I mean, my right. stuff was ruined. My personal belongings downstairs, the fire didn't 
get to that point. But how do I say this delicately? Things dripped through the ceiling. There was smoke damage and you cannot get that smoke smell out of anything. So at a time when like everything was literally felt like just a bomb had gone off, just having knowing my cat was safe and that they washed him off and cleaned him up and I got him. It was wonderful. So grateful. And you probably needed Mr. Soli. Rest in peace now, but <laughs> yeah. you didn't him at that time. Did you attend Justin's trial? Yes, I had to um, testify. And, and that was hard. In fact, you'll never find my name in any of the media. I had specifically asked Lops to record me in court. We snuck over to get my stuff when they finally removed the bodies and came to our house to clean it. I snuck over with my friends once we were given the okay and just totally avoided the media because I had no idea what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I was just like in survival mode. It was terrifying to me. I didn't know if it was just Justin or Justin and some people. And like, was it a drug thing? Like, I didn't know what happened. So I just did not even want to be there. So my last memory of the house is blood on the wall and people in white biohazard suits and me downstairs with my friends trying to figure out what we could salvage and what we couldn't. Oh, okay. So you went to his trial, you got all of your stuff out. And at that point, you have to testify. Was he in the room when you testified? Yes. And this is another thing. This is what's so hard for victims. And I, I hate to even say I'm a victim. I, I am. Like, I was instantly homeless. My friends died. It, it changed my life. But what I went through was nothing like what the friends and family of Tanner went through. But what's so hard is that there's just no closure for a really long time. I don't think the trial happened for four years afterwards. So it was just waiting and waiting and waiting. And we got a lawyer and interviews and getting ready. And then a lawyer is fired. And then we're going to try this. And then we're going to try this defense. And it's just never ending. You know, you get bloody mail back when they don't need it anymore. You start to get some of your stuff back when they don't need it. You're kind of in limbo waiting for some sort of, I don't closure is not even the right word, but something to happen and to be able to close that chapter. That chapter. So the four years leading up to the trial, was Justin in jail or was he living at home? No, he was in jail. Okay. What he did was so heinous that he was eligible for the death penalty. The problem is he was uh, young enough that it would be very hard for a jury to convict him with the death penalty on the line. Got it. So you had to testify. He's in the room. What was experience even like? Oh, it was terrifying. I just sobbed the whole time just because of nerves. You know, the firefighters are there. Like, I'm going to cry right now. Just sitting with a firefighter that turned out, like, rescued my cat. I got to thank him. Justin's mom is there. You forget that even horrible people have parents that love their children. Um, Watching the family there. I mean, I had kind of hid out. And so some of these people I hadn't even seen since Justin's funeral because I just, I just couldn't. Tanner's funeral, you mean? I'm sorry, since Tanner's funeral, yes. Hadn't seen them since Tanner's funeral um, or had very little contact just trying to protect myself Mm -hmm. because it was just such a dark period. So just being immersed in all of that again, I didn't stay for any of the pictures, any of the testimony, but sitting on that stand and I'm really grateful for my friends that showed up to support me. It was nerve wracking. It was terrifying. I I got some things wrong just because your memory fails and you add nerves and emotions. Having to repeat some of the things that Justin said about Sarah, who who he killed, and Tanner, who he killed, to their parents. I mean, it's just, it's really, really difficult. It was really difficult. And I didn't feel like I added anything to the case at all, but I did my part. <laughs> just had to show up and do my part. I'm sorry, sister. That's heavy. (laughs) That's a lot, maybe. No, I didn't think I'd get emotional, but... um, No, I am. There were... Well, just, man, that that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And then after the trial, and before they sentence, they bring the victims back to do victim impact statements. And so, not only do I have, like, you know, normal stage fright, but here I am... Justin's in the room, all these people are in the room and just sharing what it did to me and how it impacted my life, which is a such a crazy mix of emotions because you feel 
almost like, I don't want to say a fraud, but like, how could I even sit here and talk about my life when I'm sitting next to Tanner's parents, Right. you know, and all these people that lost a brother. But I did read a couple pages of how my life was impacted, which was also very hard. Being a part of a crime is very hard for so many reasons for a very long time. Well, I think that's kind of the perfect lead into what I I hope to spin this very hard story that you went through, um, because as I now know, <laughs> we all kind of expect that this is in the news, the media, you hear about these things, but it won't impact you. And then right. being your sister, I know how deeply it did for years. And you've been pretty yeah. vocal, even on your social media, about PTSD and even though you weren't there that night, just the process of getting your stuff back. I mean, you said getting receiving bloody mail that, you know, that was released from evidence. I can't imagine like you're going to work and you come home and that's waiting for you and it just re-triggers everything. So what, if you're comfortable, what after this do you feel like became triggers for you where you notice that you needed to do some, some work? Right. There's kind of two things. First, it's it's leaving your house as it is, as you always remember, as you leave it every day, and then coming back to the smell of smoke and seeing it damaged and just the, I mean, that that in itself is really, really hard. The emotions of like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of homeless and I don't have my stuff. Um, the smell of death. Mm-hmm. There's a smell of death. Um all of those things for a very long time bothered me. If I'd smell smoke, if I hear a fire alarm, I was afraid of basements. When things happen that quickly and in such a, a dramatic way, it's very hard for your brain to sort through it and to figure out what happened and to make sense of it. And so you tell yourself all kinds of stories and you sit here and you imagine things and you imagine how what might have happened and what they went through. And that also contributes to PTSD because you're telling your brain, you're sitting here thinking about all of these things that may not have even happened and literally terrifying yourself. And that's normal. It's totally reasonable that you do that. But that's what I was doing. And I had no idea how that was impacting me. The second part of it is, and and this is just as important in my story, is not only the visual, what I saw, what I experienced, what I smelled, all of that, the fact that there was no motive that this guy had been in my house and I had no red flags, went to sleep in my house with him still in there and not, he didn't just like shoot people, which is awful in itself. But the things that he did just really showed how horrible and disgusting he was and how much he enjoyed what he did and how twisted his mind was. And they've never identified a motive. And we know now that he tried to kill people before that, and he tried to kill people since in prison. So he very literally would have been a serial killer if he hadn't been stopped. The fact, so that in itself, I'm thinking, okay, Justin got gas, Justin got groceries, Justin went to school, Justin, you know, lived a normal life. Anyone could be a murderer. And then I became afraid of everything. I became afraid of driving in the dark. I became afraid of showering with my face in the water because I just felt so vulnerable. I was afraid of, like I said, basements, of being alone. I I was just terrified because you just never know who you're hanging out with and who you're around and, and, and what could happen. Did it make you like distrustful of new people? I became a hermit. I was still social. I was still myself. I was still friendly, but I did not do social things. I lived a very, very protected life. I could not be alone. Like I tried to live alone for about six months. Couldn't do it. Uh, Not even alone. She just, my roommate just wasn't there during the day. She worked at night and I couldn't handle it even in my thirties. So it significantly impacted me in that I basically lived in fear for a really, really long time. People typically think of PTSD like a war vet, right? Or someone that has some sort of physical trauma, maybe like actual direct trauma assault on them. So I had no idea that I would be going through PTSD being a bystander, like just being a part of this, but not actually having a violent act committed towards me or something. And so I just thought I would just power through it. And it wasn't until... I got to a point where I was literally getting out of my car and running 
to the grocery store, running to my apartment. I was feeling like I was always being pursued or in danger. And I went to a counselor and I really believe that that saved my life. Not that I would have ended my life, but I was making really bad decisions and coping in a really unhealthy way because I didn't know what was going on and I didn't know how to get through it. And I didn't know how to change and how to change how I perceive things and to change how I made choices, I guess, and told my brain what to believe about what was actually happening. Because your brain doesn't know the difference between reality and what you're telling it. It just knows what you're telling it. So if I'm acting like I'm going to get murdered between the parking lot and the grocery store, my brain actually thought I was going to get murdered. And so I was constantly fight or flight mode. What would you tell people? I know everyone's experience is completely different, but yeah, you mentioned going to counseling. Um, yeah. And that being a huge saving grace for you and, and making different choices to not always be living in a very active fight or flight mentality. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you have found has been beneficial as you've kind of moved into not only accepting that PTSD can happen, even if you are not the victim of these situations, but yeah, as you move forward with your life? What really helped me is talking about it. It's so easy to isolate. It's so easy to protect yourself physically, like living like a hermit like I was, and to close yourself off from people. And when you're going through hard times, you actually really need people. Not that you always need to take their advice or you need to open up to people. You have to be selective. But isolation is never, in my experience, in my opinion, a positive thing because you don't have anyone to offer you comfort or perspective. You don't have anyone to encourage you, to get you out of the house. And it's very easy to kind of spiral to a really dark, unhealthy place when no one knows what's going on and no one can hold you accountable and no one can encourage you because you're not allowing them in. So talking about it eventually when I was ready, talking about it helped. Going to counseling, being very, very proactive in my mindset and learning about how to get through this and, and what this was and, and being careful not to add that shame and that guilt. Sometimes um, mental health issues can be really like a shameful secret. It can be embarrassing, especially because I didn't, I mean, this happened to me. Like I didn't, nothing I did would have resulted in this situation. And so I felt very um, powerless. And so I had to learn to like take that power back by making better choices accepting where I was at and knowing that I I could get through it. Right. Because you can get through anything. It just might take a lot of work. And that's, it's hard. It's hard to do that work. Oh, sister. Well, I love you. <laughs> I'm just really thankful that one, you weren't there that night. Mm-hmm. And two, that you came and talked to us. And as a first turn of events, um, now we're doing a true crime podcast. <laughs> I know. I love it. <laughs> this is a wild uh, journey of emotions. Just having yeah. watched you go through this and struggle at times and knowing that you're in a much better place now. And I'm happy for that. But I am happy that you shared your story because, like I said, there's so many people that are impacted by things, whether, like you said, they're a bystander next to the experience or it happened to themselves that maybe you'll be comforted or inspired to get some help by your words. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mandy. You're so welcome. Not too. I feel like a lot of times in, in these stories, you kind of forget that they're a person, they have a personality and they had things they love and they had family. So bringing that to light was really impactful for me. And we appreciate you being here so much, even though it was hard. Of course. And, you know, I didn't really talk about Sarah very much, the other victim in this, but she, while I didn't know her as well, I've gotten to know her family and I've seen their posts and stuff. She was a daughter and a sister of many. I think there were several siblings and her school just loved her because she was still in high school. They've created all kinds of really special tributes to her. And she was just this really kind soul as well. It was just two good people that, that, got mixed up with a a truly evil human like I said there was no motive and and that's what's kind of hard too is victims get drugged through the the mud too like in court and stuff you know everything comes like every bad decision is they're trying to find motives and trying to figure things out and uh, I just want to say that this again was not a result of anything that they did 
There was no crime. There was no drug use. There was nothing. This was just a senseless, evil act. I think that's important to say because yeah, it is. Court is ugly. (laughs) Trials are ugly, and lawyers have to do their job of exactly defense where it's you know defenseless. So yeah, exactly. So. So I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for doing this. Yes. Thank yes. You. Thanks for giving me an opportunity. I hope that I can help people um, that are struggling. Thank you, Mandy, for joining us. And Elise, I feel like I just need a hug after that case. But you did a great job of talking about Tanner and Sarah and describing the bright lights that they were. So join us next week where I am talking about one of Colorado's most bizarre cold cases. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in to Cases Sunday Scaries. We will be back next Sunday. Please like, subscribe, do all the things, and leave a review. We would so appreciate it. Until then.